Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Janine Lazal from University of California Davis on this show. Please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. You got your PhD in immunology from Harvard University in 1993. You then moved on to do a postdoc with Mark Lalonde at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute and you joined the Genome Center at the University of California Davis in 2000. And you are still there today. A question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? Yeah, um, probably my parents and my upbringing had something to do with that. Um, I, uh, my father was a physicist and um, my mom's a public health nurse. And um, But yeah, it started out, I was born when my dad was in grad school. So I, we went from living in graduate student housing to moving to a 32-acre property in Virginia, which was like a small farm. Um, he got a job working for the government. This Cold War times. Um, and yeah, so it, there were woods to grow up, a big garden animal. We had sort of experimental <laughs> animals. So I learned a lot about sort of nature and at, at that level. Um, but then, yeah, I, I got interested more in the medical side. Um, my dad unfortunately died of a, a brain tumor when I was 12. Um, so that got interested in, in medicine and my mom kind of pushing me in that direction. But then I get to college and um, I kind of got pushed. I think my, I went to a small liberal arts college and my professors t tended to push me more towards the research. They saw how I was in the lab and said, yeah, you'd be a good experimentalist. So they encouraged me to apply for summer undergraduate research programs. In um, I went to uh, Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston for uh, two summers. And then uh, that got me interested in immunology. So um, I uh, applied for graduate school in immunology and ended up at Harvard, um, where there I migrated to a lab working on multiple sclerosis um, for my PhD. And then around that time, um, yeah, I met Mark Lalonde towards the end of my d dissertation work, and he's the one who converted me to go into epigenetics. <laughs> Um, one day he actually, we were collaborating with him on growing T cells and he actually came to the lab to learn how to grow the T cells with me. And at one point said, oh, I've got a postdoc and he was a Howard Hughes investigator. So it was a great opportunity. And he, he's the one who converted me to work on this strange locus of Angelman and Prader-Willi syndrome. Um, so that's kind of how I've sort of started with interdisciplinary biological background and ended up in epigenetics. So this was around the turn of the century, right? So yeah, it was nineties. Well, um, yeah, I, I started my postdoc in ninety three. So this is around when, yeah, I'd like to say that in those days, epigenetics was kind of the quirky exception to Mendelian rules, right? So people working on imprinting and next inactivation, and it was always of interest to the human geneticist, but it was kind of like that. Oh, that, that's the there's the weird folks that work on the things that you know, you know, are, are that, odd. That would have been my question: What was the feel of epigenetics like back in those days? It was pretty much imprinting and next inactivation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and again, it was always interesting. I think people were interested in what we were working on, but it was nobody thought it would apply to, you know, all sort of more complex diseases other than these these rare ones. And yeah, so coming to your science that centers around genomic imprinting, human autism spectrum disorders, and the methyl CPG binding protein MECP2. Um, a PubMed search with your name yields around 
yeah, let's say 137 publications. Uh, it could be more. <laughs> Obviously, we can't go through all of them. So let's see if we can talk about the most important things. Um, I want to start in 2013. There, a paper was published in PNAS titled The Human Placenta Methylome. Um, can you talk about this study and what you found? Yeah, so this is the early days when we started to get interested in um, you know, sequencing based for uh, looking at DNA methylation patterns. And my postdoc at the time, Diane Schrader, was really interested. We had done just a little bit of pilot experiments on whole methylome WGBS or whole genome bisulfite sequencing. Um, following up on the um, Lister and Ecker paper, which again, I think when that paper came out in 2009 in Nature, that to me was like the first satellite images of uh, what the methylone looked like. And they had seen, it's kind of buried in their paper, but when comparing like IMR90s, which is a fetal fibroblast line to, to embryonic stem cells, uh, they'd seen this phenomenon called partially methylated domains. And we were got kind of interested in that because our first sequencing of like a neuronal cell line, uh, we'd seen something that looked like that. And Diane really had the the idea. It's like, well, what about placenta? We know it's hypomethylated, but nobody knew if there were actually partially methylated domains. And in the past, it really only been seen in in tumors um, and like these, you know, fetal fibroblast line, which is is kind of grows like a tumor. So, um, so yeah, she decided to to look at the placenta, and we collaborated with folks to get to get us placenta samples. And again, it was really a striking landscape. If you look at the, the one figure in the paper where it just really drops down, there's these valleys of um, hypomethylation that are the partially methylated domain. So the the, the plant, placenta really has this unique landscape um, of partial methylation, and those regions actually have higher um, well, it's it's the regions that um, that are partially methylated have are actually go along with gene silencing. So it's 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 kind of the opposite world in the placenta, where you know the the high methylation domains are where the active genes are, and the partially methylated domains are where the genes that are tend to be silent, although they can become activated. Um, later on, we also published to figure out you know what why the placental methylene could be useful, and then so then we did a comparative study across a bunch of different mammals. Um, and learned that, well, all mammals, placentas are really different. It's a very bizarre tissue and, and recently evolved. Um, but what we, they all had in common was um, hypermethylation over the gene bodies uh, was what you see as actually a predictor of gene expression. Um, so again, that's where it's sort of opposite world. It's actually higher methylation goes along with gene expression in the placenta. So placenta seems to be an, uh, like a non-canonical or a non-usual like model system. <laughs> so what makes it so so interesting or such a good uh, tissue to study? Yeah, I think well, to me, it's like for, for human disease, again, we're like in autism spectrum disorders, we're always looking. I mean, we, we've done a lot of work in the past on looking at postmortem brain, because obviously brain is where you think the, um, you know, the epigenetic action would be. Uh, but but clearly you can't diagnose someone from their their brain. So, uh, we you know, there's been a, a real desire in the field to find a, um, a surrogate tissue that you can use. And a lot of people have used blood, but it's, you know, blood after a child's been diagnosed with autism. Uh, but we really were thinking about the perinatal period as the time when that's where the, the environmental exposures anyhow are predicted to be um, in, in autism are predicted to act as well as the genes themselves. A lot of the autism candidate genes are ones that are expressed in fetal brain. So you can think of the placenta as like a time capsule of what the, the, the fetus was exposed to and those gene environment interactions that occurred in utero. Um, so that's what makes it unique. It's, it's, it's a very, um, you know, uh, understudied tissue 
do it's and then someone ignored it. it's you know considered afterbirth it's afterthought it gets thrown away in the you know if, if you've been in the delivery room is usually like a bucket that coll- collects the placenta and cord um and it gets thrown out with the trash. So um, for these kind of studies, we really have to collaborate with epidemiologists who have a whole team of people there ready to uh, go into the delivery room to get those samples. So that they're, it's definitely not, a, a, well, it's, it's a, you know, a, a tissue that's, again, normally disposed of, but it's, it's not that actually easy to collect usually unless they're being routinely collected for research study. So there is an epigenetic co- or a connection between the epigenetic sig- signature of the placenta to the embryo then? Yeah, so that's what we've really been working on on a, a series of papers, but that um, the placenta actually can reflect much of what's going on in the developing brain, um, potentially other tissues too. But again, the brain is really the the one that is the hardest to build in uh, in life, and probably the, you know the um, it's, it's especially in primates um, where you know you've got to build this this big brain which with social and language and. Um, so yes, it's uh, what we've been able to establish is um, the signature of the placenta can often reflect. If we overlap the the differentially methylated regions, we see a significant overlap between what we find in placenta and what we find in brain. And we've seen this both in the human samples uh, in primates as well as in a mouse model of of uh, exposure. Yeah, so you you also looked at the evolutionary conservation of DNA methylation patterns and transcriptional regulatory programs in the placenta. Uh, you then performed like the genome-wide methylome, methyl C-seq analysis, analysis of human rhesus macaques uh, and other, <laughs> a bunch of other animals, um, placentas, as well as opossum also. Um, so what was the motivation behind that and what did you find then? Yeah, that was really to understand wh- why the placenta, you know, what was the, the um, convergent aspect of the placental methylome among mammals. And it was striking because they, um, if you look at like the, the global methylation levels, there are you know, big differences. Um, cow had like very low methylation. Um, and, you know, they, 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 um, but when you line things up, especially when we line like the human versus plus, uh, the rhesus um, methylation, even though the, the global methylation was slightly different, you could see the same pattern, repeating pattern of the partially methylated domains and the, and the higher methylated domains. Um, and, and again, what we were able to determine was what, what's really conserved is not so much, you know, the, the height of the landscape or even where, you know, the, the presence of, of clearly defined partially methylated domains, but it's the higher methylation over gene bodies that, that determines, um, methylation. So, and that kind of led us to, well, maybe we could use this as sort of a, um, you know, way of measuring. It's kind of like uh, carbon dating of what happened. So what happened in placenta, you almost have this, these, these footprints of differential methylation that could be laid down by differences in expression that could have happened very early in development, but they're still there in the term placenta, placenta when we collect it. So even though it's all like mammals, um, there were like, uh, like huge differences between all the, all of them. And like the concept was the same, but like the, the amount and the Uh, and uh, the signature of the the methylation methylated regions were very different. Yeah, really. Um, right. So the so I think absolute methylation is less meaningful than the the relative yeah. methylation. So the gene body versus the region around it. So when you're in a, a partially methylated domain, it's overall low methylation. But if you have a gene that's getting expressed, it, you'll see a higher methylation over that. And that was that we and we could actually use that as a predictor for genes that were being expressed in the placenta. What you then investigated uh, was the placental methylome with respect to autism and it being a potential predictive biomarker. Um, so what did you find there and how did you move into that? 
Or yeah, was, so it, this was this is like the obvious choice or the obvious path to go? Yeah, it was what I call a lesson in patience, because I think from the time we had the concept of using the placenta <laughs> methylome to find something and then getting enough samples, right? So um, so the paper we published in 2022 in, um, in, in genome biology was the one that kind of paid off that the patients, we finally got enough samples to really get a, a strong signal uh, on um, what well, we, so we were looking for differentially methylated regions um, with placenta samples for kids that either went on to develop autism or not. And so in order to do that, we actually took advantage of a high risk cohort. So with autism, there's about one to 2% in the, pop the general population, but in um, families where they have one child with autism, the ch chance of the second child having it is uh, in, in this uh, cohort was about 22%. So about one of every five placentas that were collected in this study um, would have autism. We, Because we were sequencing, it was rather expensive. We waited for the autism diagnosis at age three from this, this uh, longitudinal study and then went back and, and got enough samples to compare the two. So basically, we're looking at risk for autism before it ever develops, right? So it, in the in the newborn. Um, and yeah, so we saw this this nice signal. Uh, it's it's rare in in you know the, the, the in this field to be able to see something that's of genome wide significance. But there was this whole block of uh, methylation difference on this region of uh, chromosome 22q, and it was a region where there's really not any known genes in there. So, but we started hunting a little bit more, and it's definitely a partially methylated domain. Uh, we hunted a bit more, and there was at least one transcript that was right kind of in, in our block, and it was just, you know, one of those the LOC with a bunch of numbers after it that had been described as expressed in, in testes, but really nothing beyond that. So we decided to look into that a little more and did some um, functional analysis of what, you know, what that gene is and how it's being expressed. And it turns out it actually is, um, again, it goes along with the methylation. So in autism samples, we saw lower methylation of this locus that went along with lower expression of this gene. Um, and then we did some functional studies to figure out what it does. And it turns out it responds to, um, well, we saw it go up uh, with neuronal differentiation and uh, with hypoxia. So uh, hypoxia is really important for the, the, um, the placenta and the fetal brain. It actually gives the placenta a signal to keep going. And it's, again, Placenta is very similar to cancer in that way, that it has to do angiogenesis. And when it um, it's getting hypoxic signals, it, it gets a signal to divide and find new blood vessels. And, and actually, we did see when we overexpressed this gene in um, HEK cells, we saw an increase in proliferation. Um, we also found a little peptide. So it was you know annotated as a non-coding RNA, but sometimes the non-coding RNAs can actually um, encode peptides. And so we found this 20-amino acid peptide that um, is... Uh, we made an antibody to it and it looks nuclear. Um, and um, yeah, we're, we're still trying to figure out what it does, but uh, we we have this idea that it may be neuroprotective um, in response to hypoxia. So that's, that's a, an angle we're going now. Uh, we also found a genetic link. So even that we were looking for the epigenetics, but a lot of times, as you know, with, with epigenetics, these, these EWAS studies, you could actually find a genetics. Um, and there's a big uh, cop, um, insertion. It's a 1.7 kb insertion uh, nearby this gene, and it's very common in the population. But it actually wasn't in the reference sequence, so it's you know again been ignored. But it's there if you look at um, like Nomad um, database. It's there, and it's actually uh, you know 70% of the population has one copy of this, and about 10 to 15 has two copies. And it's the the ones that have two copies that were the risk for autism. Um, but then there was also an association with prenatal vitamin use, which um, is so most people know prenatal vitamins. Vitamins are you know uh, are are 
encouraged for women to prevent neural tube defects, but they're also protected for autism if taken in that first month of pregnancy. And so it turns out that the ones that um, in, in this cohort, if you, if the women were not taking the prenatal vitamin and the child had the two copies of this risk allele, that was that was the highest likelihood of autism. So you could maybe protect. And we think, again, the, the folate and the prenatal vitamin are, are, are counteracting a lot of the oxidative stress reaction. So. Um, so we're excited about this. It's a new new gene, new locus. It's 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 a tricky region of the genome to work in, which is probably why it hasn't been discovered. It's kind of those those, those dark areas that are still in the human genome that are, are left to be undiscovered. But um, so finding good genotyping assays, and, and again, when we're starting with a new gene, there are no reagents <laughs> in this locus. So um, it's fun, but it's it's challenging. So up until now, we only talked about DNA methylation, but have you also looked at other epigenetic markers? Uh, we have. I mean, I think we specialize more in DNA methylation, but we always look at that as a reflection of the chromatin. So we do um, chromatin immunoprecipitation sometimes for like MECP2, for histone marks. Um, we've done a little bit of a tax seek and we're starting to go more single cell. Right now we're looking mostly at single cell RNA seq, but we'd like to get into the single cell epigenetic assays and um, through collaborations and, and things like that. So we are starting to think about single cell methylomes as well. So in the last couple of years, like liquid biopsies uh, have become more and more popular. Um, so a liquid biopsy that would be possible in this like area is like cord blood. Um, can this also be used? Have you tried that? Yeah. So in the the, the same um, samples the, uh, from this this high uh, risk cohort, we had placenta and cord blood, and it's interesting because we also did um, the epigenome wide study of the blood and we sat, found a different signal there. I mean, it, 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 we all, it was less of a sort of one hit on one chromosome, but the signal we got, even though this is blood, um, when we looked at the go terms of the differentially methylated regions, they were really enriched for early neuronal development as well as enriched on the X chromosome. So that's also got us thinking about, you know, again, there's, there's a, um, Strong male to female bias in autism, it's about three to one, and it's really poorly understood. Uh, it's known that, I mean, people talk about females having a, the female protective effect against uh, many neurodevelopmental disorders and, and as well as in utero ins insults. Um, so there's something going on in the X chromosome, um, and, you know, we think maybe we got... Um, This gene exact, which is a primate-specific one that uh, sort of counteracts exist, um, and... Um, And so we're, we're thinking that maybe what we're seeing in the cord is actually some reflection of um, X chromosome erosion that's been implicated with exact. And there could be, again, environmental or stochastic regions why some um, early embryos would have um, X chromosome erosion. And, it, you know, it's probably just subtle enough that the obviously the fetus survives, but it, it, it could be involved. There's a lot of I mean, the, the X chromosome is enriched for neurodevelopmental genes already. So. Uh, anything even subtle, uh, you know, expression changes on the X could could potentially increase risk for autism. Mm. So, yeah, and it's interesting because if you think about the early embryo, you've got um, the trophectoderm, you know, the layer of cells around that becomes the placenta. So it's a very different lineage from the, the, the you know, the embryo itself, which comes from the inner cell mass. And so I think it's it's interesting that even from the same individuals, we're seeing very different epigenetic signatures, whether it comes from the placenta or whether it comes from from the blood. Um, and I think they're telling us different things that are both very interesting. Yeah, because the placenta is more the embryo and the blood is more the mother, or what is the, the connection there? No, the, I think the cord blood is, I mean, they're both from the fetus, really. I mean, we get, we check for maternal contamination, but it's always pretty low, less than like 
two to five percent or something. So yeah, both are from the from the embryo, but they come from the two different layers, either the trophectoderm, which comes the placenta, or the embryo, which um, is all the tissues in the in the fetus. So just last year, you and so we are recording this in 2023. So just <laughs> if people listen to this later, um, you and your team reported the effects of prenatal exposure to a human relevant mixture of PCBs on the DNA methylation profiles of mouse, placenta, and fetal brain. So I mean, obviously the the exposome or the things you are exposed to are are very important for your development. Um, so what did you find um, in this study? Yeah. So again, that's another one that fits into sort of the placental brain connection. So what we did, yeah. So there we were, um, and it was interesting. Again, this is the same um, cohort called the Marble Study, where you know, so what what it's human relevant in that um, they measured the PCBs in the the women in the study and then mimic this in a mouse model. So this is by collaborator Pam Lyons lab. Um, and so they you give this to the mice perinatally, and then um, we took, well, this is in utero really, and then we took E18 placenta and brain. Um, and strikingly, when we looked at the methylome, there was again, a, a really nice overlap between placenta and brain. So when we look at the placenta samples, we actually see Uh, overlap with um, it's, it was mostly neuronal um, go terms and um, uh, interestingly too because again we also have an interest in MECP2 this the the pathways that were affected um, you know if you look at if you look at Richmond you can compare to all the different RNA seq studies that have been out there and MECP2 mouse models were like one of the so the genes that are dysregulated in the MECP2 mouse models were had a strong overlap with the ones we were seeing with the PCP exposure. So again, the idea that there are convergent pathways between um, you know genetic causes and the environmental causes that are that are both affecting neurodevelopment. So you also discovered a novel autism gene for epigenome wide um, from from epigenome wide association studies of the placenta. So was this the one that you talked about? Yeah. So this is we we called it NHIP for neural hypoxia inducible placenta associated. So we got to rename, this is that one where we found it's a LOC number and we got to rename it um, based on the, the functional studies that we did. Yeah. So that's the NHIP on chromosome 20. Is there more to that as you already shared? Um, well, we just have a new grant starting. So we're starting to ask the questions. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it's really just functional. Again, when you get a new gene, you have to figure out what it does. So the really question is, you know, how is it acting? We think it's acting as a, it's, it's primate specific, And um, it's only 20, yeah, the, the peptide itself is only 22 amino acids. And the last nine amino acids um, seem to be mimicking um, uh, transcriptional activation domains. So we think that it may be acting as a mimic and, and inhibiting protein-protein interactions. Um, you know, again, there's a response usually in response to oxidative stress or hypoxia to sort of slow down cellular metabolism, slow down translation. So we think that's um, that's where our working model is right now. But yeah, we're asking, you know, what does it do? What are the, the protein partners? How is it regulated? Uh, again, the promoter is really unknown, but we think it's going to probably have this hypoxia response um, element. And uh, also just, uh, is it neuroprotective? So we've, we've started doing some cell culture experiments, adding it to see if it, in, in it inhibiting uh, reactive oxygen species in the neuronal cultures. Uh, but we're also going to try injecting it directly into mouse embryos. Um, mouse doesn't have this gene normally, but again, and we think that the pathways that it's regulating are conserved. So, um, so that'll be interesting to see. Yeah, sounds, sounds very interesting. So another buzzword in the last couple of years is really multiomics. <laughs> And you also mm -hmm. did, did a study um, last year that utilized integrative multiomics to examine maternal obesity effects on offspring neurodevelopment. 
in resource macaques again uh, by comparison uh, to lean controls and uh, to interventions. So what was the experimental setup and what did you find then? Yeah, this was a fun, another collaborative study we did with um, some folks at the Primate Center, as well as an obstetrician who was really interested in the maternal obesity. So you, as you probably know, this is um, you know a big problem now, just the the, the level of obesity and, and overweight um, uh, has increased in the population. Um, and it's about a um, severe obesity causes about 1.8 fold increased risk of autism. Um, and so, but again, it's really hard to study in humans because there's so many other things involved and, and clearly it's, it's not a respecter on, you know, on its own. Um, so we went to the macaque model. So the, in the indoor, uh, rhesus macaques, they, some of them naturally get obese. Um, so they could choose, uh, the female dams from the ones that were either obese or controls. And they also did two interventions, um, so both a cal caloric restriction, meaning they just got less food each day, and then a, um, a statin, a provostatin drug, which is, a, you know, um, reducing um, inflammation during pregnancy from the, the obesity. Um, and so the great thing about this is something we can never do in humans is we got access to, well, the placenta, but also, I mean, but you can't get the term placenta from <laughs> monkeys because they, yeah, there's, there's interesting reasons for that. But what we were able to do, they, they took blood from the dams for like four time points uh, during the pregnancy. And so, and they were already looking at the cell-free fetal DNA because they wanted to, they, they with monkeys are very expensive and they wanted to limit to a single sex to reduce the, the, the sex variability. So they were already testing for the Y chromosome. And we're like, well, we can use that for <laughs> the methylome reflecting the placenta. And that actually worked better than placenta biopsies that they were trying to take. Um, so we got cell-free fetal DNA at four different time points during the pregnancy. And then they did a lot of behavior so they could measure really cool social behavior in these monkeys. Uh, and then they took the um, brains at six months of age. So we got three brain regions that we could compare to the cell-free fetal DNA. So again, unlike in the human, where we never get the brain from the same individual as we can get the placenta, in this case, we could get the cell-free fetal DNA that matched the brain. And it was remarkable, again, how well it could, um, we found a couple of interesting regions and, and really they were, the interventions were kind of in between. So, um, you know, the we saw regions that had differences for the obese and the control with the interventions being kind of intermediate. Um, and we also kind of looked at um, multiple genes that were part of this ducks four um, complex, and uh, and that also kind of followed that. But what that we were also able to do with that is then um, our other collaborators were doing um, the immune system, so looking at a bunch of cytokines for the inflammation which occurs during obesity, and then metabolomics um, for both lipids and uh, all types of metabolites. So we did these really big. <laughs> comparisons of associations with everything. It's kind of an everything by everything uh, panel. Um, and it really does help then kind of tease out what the important components are. Um, and I'm excited about the future for self-free fetal DNA. I mean, clearly it's being used in the clinic now for genetic testing, um, but there could be epigenetic tests as well that could be combined potentially with other biomarkers. Yes, yeah, self-free DNA is really like also some... The new kid on the block that is really interesting also for cancer and things like that. So again, something that is used all over the place. Yeah, I think the cancer field are really uh, more advanced on this and we're learning from them. And 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 I, yeah, we actually are starting to do some interesting uh, cancer. Again, right now when we're looking at epigenetic predictors of, of disease, a lot of things come down to the same. So there's overlap between autism and cancer and a lot of the genetics. Um, and I'm working now uh, with... Uh, 
regeneration cohort, which is really interesting. This is Barbara Cohn, who's an epidemiologist in, in Berkeley. And um, she started saving samples in the 50s and 60s in Oakland. Anyone who came to Oakland Kaiser Hospital, so it's a nice diverse population of, and interesting exposures because these were the ones working in the shipyards in, in the 50s and 60s where there were a lot of chemical exposures. Um, and so they've been following. There was like 20,000 births they collected. And, and you can go back and then try to match the F1 and F2. So we now are working on an autism study with the F2. Um, we can get newborn blood spots from these same families. And we're starting to also look at cancer risk because they, they're interested in, in cancer risk in the, the um, women that are now in like their 50s and 60s and getting um, cancer. So so we're hoping to actually maybe inform some of those self-read DNA samples. Uh, potentially we can get from those those old plasma stored samples to, to predict cancer risk in, in the next generation. We're going for a um, grand challenges cancer grant as a part of a big team um, this fall. So that's kind of my new <laughs> also interest. Yeah. So in your lab, you also focus on other things like MECP2, as we, we mentioned, and the related disease red syndrome and also other genetic neurodevelopmental disorders that involve epigenetics, like the Prodavilli syndrome. But in the interest of time, I just want to focus on maybe your more recent work on this uh, with regards to Prodavilli syndrome. You looked at an encoding RNA and how this affects the diurinal rhythm. I just had to look up what the diurinal rhythm is. <laughs> um, how does, uh, I mean, non-coding RNAs are like all over the place and it's really hard to, to really dissect or, or pinpoint like what it really does. And, and so what did you found about the connection of, of this non-coding RNA? Yeah, this is probably way more complex to cover <laughs> the time we have because I've been working on this locus, uh, you know, over many decades. Um, but yeah, it, it, the, the Prader-Willi Angelman locus, this imprinted region is kind of like a neuronal operon where all the parts are kind of regulating each other. But um, yeah, the non-coding RNAs in the Prader-Willi locus get, I mean, it, they're these, uh, the mineral deletion region that causes Prader-Willi syndrome is these snow RNAs, small nucleolar RNAs, but they are processed from within a larger non-coding RNA that's called the host gene. Um, and we've seen previously by RNA fish that this host gene actually stays at the site of transcription. And it, it look, it's like a cloud. It looks like the exist cloud on the inactive X chromosome. And I, you know, kind of acts. But that is. Something, not, although it seems yeah. to be more activating than repressing. So. But the locus is not in the nucleolus then. Well, the snow RNAs go to the nucleus. They're processed out and they go to the nucleolus. But the host gene stays at oh. the site of transcription. Um, and you get this chromatin decondensation that we've seen way back too. Uh, anyhow, we've been working on this locus forever, but then the, more recently, as we started to get in the genomics and seeing the genes that, that were different, we saw that there were a lot of uh, circadian genes that came up, as well as metabolism, like mTOR pathway. Um, so it, it got me interested in, in metabolism, and it's really more the diurnal. I mean, so circadian um, genes are really, it's genetic, right? So if you put the, you know, the any organism in the dark, the circadian clock continues to cycle. But as you know, you know, when you travel, you get jet lag. And um, so, you know, you can re-entrain your uh, circadian clock based on the environment. So really circadian entrainment is the gene environment interaction. Uh, and so we'd seen this previously that really that doing RNA-seq at different times of the day in our Prader-Willi model, we got very different results. So that it was mostly like we saw the dysregulation of genes mostly in the middle of their sleep and the, in the light period. Um, and then when we compared both the transcriptome and the methylome, one of the top terms we saw was circadian entrainment. So that's why it prompted us to do the current experiment, which is still ongoing, where we're actually entraining the mice to 
uh, instead of 12, 12 hours of light and dark, we're going to 11, 11, um, and then studying the effect of both the deletion and the overexpression of the SNORD-116 locus. Um, and that's really interesting. We're getting, you know, it's it's a lot of data. <laughs> and then we're correlating this back to the, the, um, the phenotypic data, which is... Um, um, like metabolism and as well as running wheel data. So, so that, that's still ongoing. Um, but I'm really interested. This the Prater really interested when the locusts uh, evolved within mammals. It's it's um, not there in marsupials and it's not there in the tenrec, which is supposedly the oldest uh, placental mammal that's the, the, the most ancient that's been sequenced. Um, so it is fascinating that this may be part of sort of a mammalian, you know, the, the um, Mammals finding their niche in terms of sleep and metabolism, and and they all kind of have. So that it, it, it's a fascinating locus for a number of reasons. So, what kind of effect does this cycling of this non-coding RNA have on the disease? So, is there a type of intervention that you could do based on this? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I, it is possible there could be. I mean, there's this field of chronotherapy where you know either you know adjusting people to the right time of day. I mean, kids with Prader Willi um, do have sleep problems. I mean, they mostly they fall asleep during the day a lot, like they're in school, but then um, at night they wake up more frequently. Um, so yeah, it could be you know maybe matching them or even just letting them <laughs> go by their own clock. You know, they might just follow their own time, and if they school schedules could be adjusted or something for them, and in, in, in these cases, it, it it could be you know improve their at least mm -hmm. health and well being. At least their, their mental well being, if they are not pushed to something they don't like. Yeah, and the problem is they're always hungry, so they're always looking, seeking food. And again, that's um, another part of the whole metabolism um, yeah. issues that are going on with these kids. And last but not least, you and your team profiled the gut microbiome and metabolome across disease progression in RAT syndrome, now switching over to MECP2. Um, in the last couple of years, the evidence of the connection of the gut and the brain have stacked up. So there have been found multiple connections between the, 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 the two areas. And this seems to go into the same direction. So what did you find here about the connection? Yeah, and I've gotten convinced to, I guess, you know, seeing the, you know, the, the whole field progress. And it was interesting because usually you think about that as being environmental, but there are definitely genetic causes as well, too, to changes in the gut microbiome. And we've known for a while that, I mean, the, the, although you think of Rett syndrome as a disease of the brain, that many of the other body systems are affected. They, the girls have, um, you know range between constipation and diarrhea. There are a lot of GI problems. They're, they have breathing abnormalities. They have um, all kinds of other, you know, systems affecting the body. Um, so um, we were interested. And, and what we have is a, um, so most, I'd say 90% of the, the papers in the field of Rett syndrome are studying the knockout male mouse model, but it, it, it affects girls and humans. It's, it's an X-linked dominant disorder. And it's one of the few X-linked dominant disorders out there, right? There's probably a handful that you can count. Um, and that for a good reason, because usually if you have a mutation on the, the well, one X chromosome, the other X chromosome is, is compensating for it. But in Rett syndrome, it's not. But again, they don't develop sim symptoms that you, that you can't tell at birth if a child has Rett syndrome. They start to develop um, changes in their, their milestones around, you know, six to 18 months of age. And then it goes through a period of, of regression steps. Uh, in the mice, we don't necessarily see regression per se, but we do see a, a, in the female mice, we see a nice progression of symptoms and it's both metabolic as well as motor uh, are, the, are the primary phenotypes we see. So we wanted to kind of look at different time points to see the progression and how the females were different from the males. Um, and the, yeah, the, the striking thing is that from the microbiome and the metabolome, we saw very different progression in the males versus the females. And it wasn't just that the females had, you know, a, a, a only one um, 
It wasn't just the the, the dosage of the the mutation. Um, and th- there was a lot of dynamics going on in the the uh, microbiome and the metabolome. We saw butyrate came up before any of the symptoms, and that's usually one that's you know thought to be a good guy. But I think in Rett syndrome, everything is, is a little bit odd. Um, and when we looked at the lipids in the, the fecal pellets versus the um, brain, we saw some correlations there. So it's almost like they're not absorbing the lipids from the gut very well. And that could be a combination of the inflammation, the altered gut microbiome. Um, so we are really now kind of interested in um, getting interested in lipids, <laughs> dietary lipids, and how the, the gut absorbs the lipids in this model, because that could be a good avenue for therapy. Because the neurons wouldn't develop well without the right lipids? Right. So we really see deficiencies in lipids in the female brain um, that are correlated with what's going on in the gut. So my last scientific question <laughs> is, uh, like, you, you kind of touched upon this, but what are you working on right now? And let's say, like, for the next five years, what are your goals that you that you are striving to? Yeah, I think I touched on our, our NHIP project, which we're excited about is, you know, is it neuroprotective and figuring out how it's regulated. So that's definitely one angle. Um, I'm also, yeah, so we're getting really focusing on preventative types of care. So we're, we've got a new center called the Perinatal Origins of Disparities uh, with the idea of, of using sort of perinatal life, uh, again, epigenetic signatures from newborns to try to um, predict risk and prevent um future problems and, and also interventions during pregnancy to try yeah, we're involved in um, collaborating with a social scientist now who's doing this intervention, mobile health intervention during pregnancy. And we're getting samples sort of before and after the intervention to look for epigenetic signatures. Um, so it's, it's that kind of thing. I think we're getting, doing a lot more collaborations and getting more into the um, maybe more public health, uh, precision, public health and precision medicine so much. So. I mean, I think for for future grants, it's also important to have some kind of this in in, in your science, right? I mean, it, it, yeah. yeah, I think it's. I mean, I find it rewarding. I mean, I think I, I reached the point in my career where it's like I can either go where everybody else is going, which is you know gene therapies for very rare diseases. But when you think about the societal impact of that, I mean, a lot of these families might not even be able to afford these you know, therapies. Whereas if you could do something more towards, you know, the the more common disorders or, or preventative healthcare, I think that that's kind of where I feel more rewarded. <laughs> so for the last 40 minutes, we have been on a journey um, through your scientific career. So did we miss anything important that you would like to add? Yeah, I think we covered most everything um yes i think um to finish off could you maybe give us a brief summary of your most important finding or that you would consider your most important finding oh big one <laughs> <laughs> well i mean i think I, i don't know if it's one finding but i think it's if i can kind of appeal to the the young <laughs> scientists out there is kind of follow your nose in your research i mean i think that's what we've done and and you know I guess I'm, I'm just the constant learner and we're always trying to fit out. I, I, some people will tell you to focus completely on one molecule, one thing, and that is that is good advice. But I think if you are do like to sort of follow your nose on research, don't be afraid to learn new things. Um, yeah, again, we've gotten into so many new fields. I didn't know much about the placenta at all until I you know, was introduced to it. And they were like, oh yeah, this actually could work for this. So, so be open to new ideas, to new methods and to new collaborations, I think, and, um, and, and take them where, go, go where they take you. And I think that's, you know, how we got 
to some of the discoveries that I'm proud of, like the discovery of, of NHIP and um, the discoveries in the Prater Willy Locus. We've kind of followed our nose on that one for over the years and, and continue to find it interesting. So thank you, Janine, for your time and for being on the show. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned.